Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Anna. And what are we doing today? We're doing our very first shorty. Three, two, one. Shorty. (laughs) (laughs) And we're doing this because... Because we want to give you more of the same content. And there's some crimes that just don't have an hour's worth to talk about. Yeah, we were. So what we're doing is just a shorter version of our regular Wednesday episodes, our regularly scheduled programming, Mm -hmm. because when we are searching for new stories, we come across probably 30 stories that we heavily research before determining, okay, we can't make a full episode out of that. But now we've got this short 10 minute story in our mind that was really interesting. And we're interested in it, yeah. But we just can't make it in an hour episode out of it. So then we came up with this idea to do these little mini episodes that are really short. They're like perfect for your drive to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do 15 minutes on the elliptical, treadmill, whatever, yes. or elliptical. And this is just us being in the, the, the mood for giving this holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my shorty today, my very first shorty, mm-hmm. is about Michelle Martinko. Do you okay. know that story? Sounds incredibly familiar. The Martinko part. <laughs> but keep going. Okay. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I need more than that. So it's about 2 a.m. on December 20th, 1979 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Albert Martinko has been up all night worried sick and finally calls the police to report his 18-year-old daughter, Michelle, as missing. The last he knew of her whereabouts, she had attended a banquet for her high school's choir program at the Sheraton Inn, but she never came home, which was very unlike her. So both Albert and the Cedar Rapids PD immediately go out searching, hoping to come across any sign because they don't know where she was last. They, they just know she had been at the Sheraton, but there's no sign of her there. And then at 4 a.m., a police officer found Michelle's car in the empty parking lot of a JCPenney. Michelle's lifeless body was curled up on the floorboards of the passenger seat. She had been stabbed 29 times in the face, neck, and chest, plus defensive wounds on her hands and arms. There was virtually no blood found outside of the vehicle, which suggests that she was probably inside the car and then ambushed by someone and killed inside. There were also no fingerprints found anywhere that didn't belong to either Michelle or her family because she was driving her parents' car. Her body was curled up in like the where you put your feet. Where your feet in the passenger side. It's a very small space. Yeah. There aren't photos or anything like it online, but 
the description of what I read is like it seems like maybe the front seat of the car was one of those like like you could fit three oh, people. Oh, the bench seat. A bench seat. Gotcha. Yeah. I think it was like that. So whether she was getting in and someone got in on the other side or she was yes. putting bags inside or something and I don't I know. I was picturing like a, a sedan no, type thing. No. no. Okay. So there, there was more space on the floor. Uh, so because there were no fingerprints that didn't belong to her and her family, they just assumed that the killer wore gloves intentionally. She was fully dressed, and the medical examiner later determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. They estimated that she died between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m., and the amount of cash left in her wallet means it probably wasn't a robbery. The police suspected it was a male, and possibly a male that Michelle might have known because it was such an intimate murder, but that's all that they knew. They had nothing else to go off of. So Michelle had been born October 6, 1961, so she was a Libra. She was born and raised in Cedar Rapids, and she was very close to her family. She was a very, very sweet girl. She was really beautiful. She was really involved in her high school uh, different activities. Mm-hmm. She was in the high school choir program and in the theater department. Such a Libra. And I know, and she was also on the twir- twirling squad. So social, has to be a part of everything. Yeah. She was really well-liked among the teachers at school, but she struggled to maintain close friendships. She seemed to be bullied by girls her age. and Because she was hot. Honestly, looking, jealous. looking at photos of her, I really do think it was a jealousy 100%. thing. Because she was just drop-dead gorgeous. And sweet. Yeah. Girls hate that in high school. Yep. She was like so stunning and fashionable. Like her hair was so 70s. All her clothes were like so Oh, I want to see like pictures. She, just, she was really cute. She's fabulous. Yeah. And... uh she she was a senior and so she was planning on going to Iowa State University where she planned to study interior design. So over the course of the next few months, police interviewed hundreds of people, none of which panned out as suspects. Two witnesses were questioned under hypnosis and described seeing someone loitering near Michelle at the mall that night. Hmm. A white man in his late teens or early 20s, around six feet tall, weighing 165 to 175 pounds, with brown eyes and curly brown hair, but nothing came of that. A woman came forward and stated that around 2 a.m. on December 20th, she drove by the JCPenney parking lot. She made it a point to look at the lot as she passed because her daughter worked at the mall and often had car trouble, so it was just a habit that this woman had that if she drove by that parking lot, she'd look over. She said that she saw two cars in the lot, one of which was Michelle's. A man was standing next to the open driver's side door of Michelle's car, but unfortunately nothing came of this either. So it turned out after the banquet on the evening of the 19th, Michelle had asked a couple of girls if they wanted to join her on a shopping trip to the newly opened Westdale Mall. Michelle needed to buy a new winter coat and wanted to stop in to see her co-workers at the store that she worked at, Mm -hmm. but the girls declined, so Michelle went alone. Several witnesses remembered seeing and interacting with Michelle that night. People that she worked with um, at this store that she was at, Mm -hmm. uh, kids from school, like several people saw her and interacted, like a couple of dozen people. It was, it was a lot. So many, many people saw her at the banquet, then at the mall. Yeah. Yeah. They all said that she was in a seemingly normal chatty mood. Everything seemed totally fine with her. Everyone who interacted with her said just was totally normal she didn't seem spooked or scared they didn't see her with anybody else she seemed to be alone the last time that she was seen had been inside the mall near a jewelry store sometime between 8 p.m and 9 p.m so for the first year or two there seemed to be many leads all of which proved to be nothing and then eventually the case just went cold 
Michelle's parents, Albert and Janet, sued the mall in the mid-1980s, stating that the mall was negligent because there wasn't adequate security the night that their daughter was murdered. But they ended up losing the lawsuit. Okay. Albert passed away in 1995, and Janet passed away in 1998, both of them dying without knowing who took their daughter from them. But then, in 2018, a blood sample taken from the back of the dress that Michelle had been wearing when she was killed was tested again. You know, her file had gone into those files of cold cases, and then, you know, in the the last few years, especially with the Golden State Killer, there's, there's new detectives who were going over cold cases like combing through looking for those things to retest and stuff like that so they they tested it they tracked down the possible killer and after taking a straw that he had been drinking out of they tested his dna against the sample from the dress and it was a match on december 19th 2018 the 39th anniversary of michelle's death jerry lynn burns was arrested and charged with first degree murder He had been 25 years old and living in Iowa at the time that he killed Michelle. During the trial, the prosecution had gotten a search warrant to see Jerry's internet search history. Oh, no. So buckle up. We're not going to like this. In 2018, he regularly searched for porn containing blonde women being raped, stabbed, strangled, and images and videos containing sexual intercourse with murder victims. So not just your standard necrophilia. It has to to specifically be a murder victim. However, the judge didn't allow that to be introduced as evidence because of the almost 40-year separation between Michelle's murder and the said internet searches. That just proves that he still likes the same disgusting crap. Yeah. So it's worth acknowledging. I'm so glad it became like public knowledge, even though it wasn't technically involved in the trial. Yeah. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Michelle's sister, Janelle, said, as gratifying as this conviction was, she wishes her parents had been alive to witness it, obviously. Of course. So that's the story of Michelle Martinko's murder and how familial DNA caught her killer almost 40 years later. But we're not done. During the initial interview where police arrested him, Jerry was emotionless. He denied ever meeting Michelle and then completely out of nowhere... He mentions the name of a missing woman. The two cases happened 16 years apart, and the cops talking to him did not bring up this woman, nor did they, she wasn't even on their radar, you know? Jerry said something like, I saw something on the news recently about Jody Husentrout. It was like kind of a big story. He's incriminated himself. I know, and the cops are like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) What up, bro? So Jody Husentrout was born June 5th, 1967, so she was a Gemini. Mm Mm-hmm. She had grown up in Minnesota, but after graduating from college, she accepted a job at a news station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She worked there as a news anchor for a while, uh, but then she sort of bounced around to different stations, eventually settling down in Mason City, Iowa, where she became very well known as the local news anchor. On the morning of June 27, 1995, around 4 a.m., a producer at the station became worried when she realized that Jody hadn't shown up for work. So the producer calls to make sure everything's okay. And Jody picked up breathless and apologetic. She's like, I'm so sorry. I overslept. I'm grabbing my stuff. I'm running outside right now. However, I mean, that's at 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. By 6 a.m., the station needed to get a fill in for Jody because she still hadn't shown up. Another hour went by. They tried calling her again, but there was no answer. So her colleagues called 911. 
The police went to Jody's apartment building to do a welfare check and found what seemed to be a crime scene in the parking lot. Jody's red Mazda Miata was still in its spot and a clear struggle had taken place outside her driver's side door. Items from her purse, a single red high heel shoe, and her car key were scattered on the ground. And the key had been bent like really significantly, which was odd because it's, I was wondering if like maybe she was putting it in the door to unlock a struggle. Yeah, struggle. And it literally like bent out. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. There were also significant scrape marks on the ground that might have been related to someone being dragged. Mm -hmm. But there was no blood and no sign of Jody. They found a partial palm print on her car, but nothing ever came from it. Three neighbors stated that they heard a woman scream in the parking lot roughly around the time that Jody would have been leaving, but none of them had done anything, which irked I was gonna say, me. Yeah. I mean, if you hear a woman scream outdoors at any hour, but especially like in the middle, you know, 4 a.m. Yes. was the middle of the night for everybody else except for her. You do I under I understand if you don't want to go outside. I'm not suggesting anybody to go insert themselves into call something. All you got to do is call 911. Yeah. It's like better to be safe than sorry. Save someone's life potentially. Yeah. That was 26 years ago and nothing has ever come from the investigation. Jody vanished that morning and has never been seen or heard from again. Her family and friends in the community of Mason City have done everything to keep her memory alive and fresh in the media and they hope to get answers one day. Jerry Burns mentioning her by name during his arrest for the murder of Michelle honestly might be nothing. Mm-hmm. He could have been chatting nervously and mentioned the name of another well-known missing local woman. Just to make small talk. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he abducted and murdered Jody that day and he mentioned her because he either has a guilty conscience or because he mistakenly thought that the police would link him to her. Mm-hmm. Either way, he has since denied being involved in her disappearance and is aggressively trying to get a new trial. He claims the police digging through trash to get a straw that he disposed of is unconstitutional. Okay, so it's murder, <laughs> bud. Even, <laughs> excellent if you, if you want to play that game. Even though the judge in his murder trial already ruled that discarded property can't be deemed as private property. So in the years since Michelle's murder, Jerry Burns got married and had kids. His wife committed suicide in 2008. And then so eerily... On December 19th, 2013, so exactly 34 years after Michelle's murder and five years before his arrest, Jerry's cousin, Brian Burns, mysteriously disappeared and has not been found. But apparently authorities looked into it and Jerry is not a suspect in either scenario. So whether or not Jerry Burns had anything to do with Jody's disappearance, we may never know. But the similarities are eerie and worth noting. They were both young, beautiful, blonde women living in Iowa and attacked in parking lots 16 years apart. And that's my shorty about Michelle Martinko and the possible connection to Jody Husentrup. Very well done. That was a jam-packed less than 20 yep. minute It's called a shorty, baby. It's called a shorty for a reason, honey. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you. You are very welcome. <laughs> Love you. Bye. I Love you. Bye. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, 
you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina. See you next week.